what is lacking, I think, is actually real examples of that really working. And you look around, you hear this, you know, it's like one of those concepts that works on paper and you're like, all right, well, who's doing it? And um, there aren't many examples of that in the world and we want it to be one. Hello and welcome to Say Hi to the Future, Ingenious Thinkers, a podcast aimed at highlighting the human side of ingenuity. My name is Ken Tenser, curator of Say Hi to the Future, helping leaders think differently in the face of uncertainty and ambiguity. Better thinking, better outcomes. With me today is Sherry Tarr, co-founder of the Third Millennium Alliance, a nonprofit conservation organization that is working to preserve and restore the most endangered rainforest on Earth. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, Jerry Toth, welcome to Say Hi to the Future. Thanks for having me. So, Jerry, it says rainforest conservationist, chocolate entrepreneur, and independent filmmaker based in Ecuador. So, what comes first? How did it happen? That's a lot of stuff. Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> Uh, you know, it all, I guess I've been living and working in South America for the past over 20 years now. And my current, my life as it is now kind of combines all the things that I really care about. Rainforest conservation. I do make chocolate. Uh, I do make films. And I've to some extent found a way to wrap all those things together now now it doesn't fit uh perfectly well but those are all those are my uh interests in life and also my my interests in work so one is wonderful that you've been able to to to, to blend them together i mean um passion and 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 curiosity and 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 you know when you blend that with things that are important um, you know, to yourself and to the world around you. One, that's that's awesome. So kudos on that. Where, where does it start though? Like, you know, any one of those has to start yeah. some, is it a moment? Is it a passion? Like, why you? Yeah, well, so I, I, right after I graduated from university, my very first job was working on Wall Street of all places in New York City, in investment banking and I knew kind of from the outset that I didn't want to be doing that even before I started. I had this sense I was I, I was doing it because I felt like this was the next step in the logical progression of a of a successful life. You study hard, you get good grades, you get you go to the university that you that's a good university, you get the good job, you get married, you have kids, you, you know, die and then then that's it. Um and I, Kyle Earth, Jerry. Yeah, <laughs> and I, and I just didn't, I, I didn't really, I, f I didn't want that, and I, re I didn't realize that until I was actually kind of uh, somewhat on that path, and I felt called to leave the urban jungle and go to, uh, go to South America, go to uh, warmer, wilder places, and and figure out what I wanted to do there. I wanted to spend it. And basically it started out as simply as wanting to spend most of my time outside, uh, find a job that I could really do for the most part in, in fresh air. 
Um, and so that was, that's what triggered me to leave that earlier version of my life. And, and I did it young. I mean, I, I, this, this, I worked for, I was only in New York for one year and left when I was, I believe I was 23. And that began a period of, of uh, living and working in many different countries in South America and Central America. And after a few years of that, kind of starting to hone my, my interests, I eventually settled on, on Ecuador and wanted to, to put down roots in a, in a, in a country and really also put down roots in a project and start getting to work on something uh, more meaningful. I'd previously been worked as a journalist for a while, actually for a Canadian magazine, Adbusters, um, which is out of Vancouver. But that magazine brought us in contact with uh, the, the concept of sustainable development and, and certain methods of sustainable development, specifically permaculture. And I was in Ecuador with two other people that became the co-founders of Third Millennium Alliance, or, or TMA as we call it. Uh, and we wanted to kind of put our, our money where our mouth is in a sense, or we wanted to, to get involved in, in these concepts that we were talking about and interested in. We wanted to actually apply them and we wanted to apply, to apply them in a specific place. We wanted to uh, practice what we preached in a, in a sense. And we wanted to see if we could kickstart a, a new development path in a certain uh, region in Ecuador that had been really ravaged in the past 80 years through deforestation and, and agricultural expansion. It was reaching a tipping point, this, this really ex special ecosystem, the Pacific Forest of Ecuador, that much of it had been lost and it was headed in the wrong direction. And we felt that if we could have an impact in this specific area, uh, that that would be, you know, that would be a big victory for, for Ecuador, for ecology. And, and I think it maybe set an example for what could be done in other parts of the world. And so we just kind of planted a flag in the middle of this, of this rainforest and uh, with the the impetus to to do what we could to protect what was there and restore what's already been lost and to do it with um, the people that were living in the area and to do it in, in the most constructive way possible, uh, aligning economic incentives um, with uh, conservation goals. And so that's what we've been doing for the, the the better part of the last 15 years. And the chocolate company grew out of that and then filmmaking grew out of, of that as well. And so here here we are. Thank you for sharing that, Jerry. And so just explain to me, still on on, on landing in Ecuador and, and finding this specific project or emphasis of, of your life, a lot of forces going on there. Like when you get to Ecuador, I mean, you, you say you plant a flag, but there's got to be government impetus or regulation or decision-making involved in what you can and cannot chop down. There's got to be huge business involved with the profit motive in the area. So from planting a flight, like just walk me through um, how that works, how, how you take your first steps. Yeah, so the, the area that we work in now and, and that is now uh, a uh, protected area called the, the Hamakuake uh, Forest Preserve, which currently protects 2,500 acres 
we initially started by uh, purchasing a hundred acre property at the very top of this mountain. And it was a, uh, we kind of came, we, we came upon it and someone by happenstance happened to meet the uh, grown son of a man who was selling the property. He knew that we were conservationists in, in search of a project and he, he offered to take us to this, to his father's land. And he said, it's this really special property. It's, um, it's, it has cloud forests. It has all these waterfalls as three different rivers are born in this property. And it all sounded a bit too good to be true, but we took him up on it and we were up for an adventure and we saw the, the land and we, we had this moment of we, we arrived and on the drive there, you really are driving through for the most part, uh, just miles and miles and miles of cattle pasture and land that's already been deforested. And you almost get the sense that, you know, is there really any forest here? It, did, it didn't seem like there was. And eventually then we, we broke off the main road and started driving inland. And you can see way in the distance, this mountain range, it's almost perpetually covered by fog far in the distance. And as we got closer, sure enough, we, we realized we were at the, at the gates of this, just this massive forested uh, mountain range. And it's kind of hidden. A lot of people even in the, in the, the province itself don't know that it exists. And we hiked all the way up through the forest up to the top of that mountain. It was a long, it is a long journey. And we got to the top and, and sometimes there's days because it's almost always shrouded in clouds where you don't get a good view. But on that particular day, we got lucky and, and there was uh, the clouds, the, the fog had cleared a bit and, and there was enough of a little peak hole through the forest that you could look out. And, and we realized that we were kind of in this island of of this of of green an island of biodiversity surrounded by a sea of, of cattle pasture and there was a very real sense that this is a place that is not this is a very special part of our planet and it is most likely not going to exist in 10 years if something's not done and so that's where we started we we raised money through friends and family um to to purchase 100 acres it was sixteen thousand sixteen thousand dollars us at the time and and from there, we we just spent a lot of time living in that forest. Actually, we we camped in that forest. We pitched tents. We lived there. We made uh, friends with our neighbors. We learned as much as we could about the area. We met all the other uh, you know landowners that lived in the area. Most of the landowners actually didn't live in the area. Most of that land was owned by absentee owners, and in some cases, had just inherited those properties from these massive land holdings from other. Um, their parents or grandparents had never visited their properties. It was this kind of abandoned forest. And, uh, you know, every now and again, one of the, the members of that family would sell off a piece and, and that piece would be promptly cleared for cattle ranching and, and the ag agricultural frontier kept moving up the mountains slowly but surely. We had seen this in other parts of the, the region where that line of agriculture just kept moving up the mountain, moving up the mountain until it reached the top of the mountain. And then at that point, the forest was lost. The rivers would eventually run dry, and uh, you know the the early stages of desertification would begin. This is a pattern that had been taking place and in, in throughout the the province, and in this in this particular area, it hadn't yet. And so we we purchased that property and we started to to uh, figure out how what what to do about this. And then it, it wasn't to your initial question. It, it wasn't so much about corporations that were uh developing land it wasn't 
so much about what the government was doing. The government really wasn't doing anything. There, there was no oversight really whatsoever. It was more about what uh, local landholders were doing, what small scale farmers were doing just to make a living and what cattle ranchers were doing. And so it was really engaging with with uh, the communities around the area that was the, the first and foremost on our mind and still is to this day. Even more so maybe if 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 these small landowners are doing this to make a living to feed their family or how, how do they decide not to how do what is is selling that profitable what do they do after like what is the whole sort of continuation if you will yeah and that right well that right there that is the the trillion dollar question and that's that is the question that if we as humanity want to 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 you know solve the deforestation problem that's the question at the heart of it how can we align economic interests with uh, preserving forests. And so we initially didn't have that answer. We tried on a bunch of different solutions and there, there are solutions floating on, floating around out there. There's kind of, um, a few general tactics that the conservationists will, will, uh, will try to employ. I mean, ecotourism is, is a common, uh, alternative. We, the, the approach that we really found to be the most useful is shade grown cacao. And so uh, cultivating cacao trees in the shade of the forest, whether that's a cultivated forest or a secondary growth forest, but uh, farming cacao trees and other fruit fruit uh, producing crops uh, in, a, in a forest setting. So in other words, regenerative agroforestry, okay. that to us was the most promising solution. And so this region, people already had uh, a history of, of cultivating cacao. They had largely abandoned it because prices were so low and it was no longer generating a profit for them. So part of it was, was the task of how do we, how can we improve the prices that, that farmers are paid for cultivating cacao? How can we tie those high prices to, uh, biodiversity metrics? For example, it's not just, a, um, about producing cacao and, and, and purchasing the, the cacao from those farms, but it's ensuring that the cacao is grown in, in, a, in a forest setting, it is grown beneath the shade of, of taller trees uh, with a certain degree of biodiversity and connecting those farmers with uh, high paying chocolate companies that are looking for, looking, you know, whose, whose customers themselves also want to support uh, forest restoration rather than deforestation and try to kind of close that gap and put all those pieces together so that it's all working together. You have um, farmers who are cultivating shade grown cacao. You have chocolate companies who are um, paying a premium for cacao that's grown in the shade. And, and we're kind of marrying those two elements to create a project that that works for, for all parties. This is fascinating to me. You have deforestation and you keep talking about shade grown cacao where does the shade come from how do you redevelop or reforest an area to make this viable yeah so the that's that is a good question the a lot of the, the properties that we're trying to restore um are land that had been cleared years ago in most cases decades ago 
initially logged and then slashed and burned to grow a few years of corn and then probably uh, converted to cattle pasture. And so how do we, how do we reek? How do, so that, that is land that was formerly forest that was converted to either uh, monoculture corn or monoculture pasture grass. How do we reconvert that back to forest through cacao? And the, the design that we came upon and we've been, we've been cultivating cacao and, and testing different uh, agroforestry designs for, for many years, we created this, this design that tries to optimize, uh, biodiversity of trees, uh, productivity of, uh, um, of the crops grown and, uh, yield that farmers can earn. And so we basically there, we had this, 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 uh, I guess, uh, a menu of options where farmers can grow, uh, the, the ideal design is 100 shade trees per hectare planted at, uh, at 10 meter spacing. So um, across 15 different species, mostly combination of native hardwood species, uh, tall fruit trees. And so they kind of, the, the 10 by 10 is that you could think of that as the, the architecture of their parcel. And this isn't cacao trees. These are uh, trees that are going to grow up and mimic the, the structure and, and, and the canopy of a forest. And then in between those trees, they plant also line of banana trees, uh, banana plants, and then also lines of cacao trees. And so you have cacao and banana growing up below, you know, alongside these other trees. And in the first few years, everything is kind of coming up together. And so you look at it in, in two or three years and it's not shade grown cacao yet. It's still, it's cacao that's grown in the shade of banana plants, the banana plants come, uh, grow really quickly and establish shade within the first year. Uh, meanwhile, the, the taller trees, the, the timber trees and the, the tall fruit trees, like, uh, avocados, mangoes, um, breadfruit, jackfruit, those continue to grow. And over time you have this forest that, that grows up and, and eventually is reaches heights of, of 30 meters, 25 meters. Below that, you have these uh, a bunch of three meter cacao trees that, when you do a, a drone flyover or take satellite imagery of, you don't really see those trees in in, in the understory. You see these old, these large um, overstory trees, and you look to the to the naked eye, it looks like a forest. You walk through and say, "Oh, this is this is a forest." If you pay attention, you can see, okay, yeah, there's some intentional spacing here. Uh, if you identify the species and you also recognize the fact that, wow, there's also a lot of food producing trees in this, uh, in this forest, but it's, it's effectively mimicking the structure of a forest. But the, the difference is, is that, that what this forest produces is, uh, food for local food security, uh, habitat for wildlife and, um, income for farmers. Okay. So that, and that's where I was going to go next is understanding the economics and and outcome. So, is it is it a, a whole group of interconnected micro farms, if you will? I mean, are you acquiring or whatever building more of your own land? Is it a, is it a hundred family? Yeah, farms? like yeah. So it's these are all family farms. So we don't. This is this is land owned by our neighbors and these uh, farmers that are interested in, in participating in the program. And there, it's 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 a network of of the, all these different farm parcels. When you look at a, a map of it, and for the most part, we we 
we try to work with farmers that that live and work in the buffer zone that surrounds the the protected area, the kind of the native forest. As you go from the very top of the mountain, you start, you know, where the the, the true stands of primary growth and and mature secondary growth forests are at the top. As you start going down the mountain range, you start to get into uh, degraded forests and you start to get into patches of land that have been cleared for cattle ranching. You continue going down and eventually, you know, you're halfway down the mountain and then most of the, the land is deforested. And by the time you get to the bottom of the mountain, everything is deforested. And so cacao is best suited for actually those that, that mid-elevational buffer zone band uh, that's just where the water conditions tend to be the best. And it's also the most, it, it's the most ripe for restoration. And so we focus, we, we, we try to work with farmers in that area. And the, the, the criteria is, is first and foremost, people that want to part- participate, people that are looking for an alternative, people that can sense that this is going to be good economically for them. Um, and, you know, since some some communities do the heavy irrigation access, do they have um, can the ability to? And that's part of our program. We 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 help people set up gravity fed irrigation systems. Uh, we provide all the seedlings necessary, all the fencing necessary, um, mechanical weed whackers, and the the key component, which I think was the real game changer for us, because in an earlier iteration of this project combined much of that, but lacked the um, the the feature of bridge payments. And so one of the, when we would propose this idea in the past, we would, we would say, you know, this is, um, you will earn more money growing, cultivating cacao than you are cattle ranching. And they'd say, yes, but I had cows right now. It'll take me a few years for, for, uh, for I have, you know, to get those cacao trees up and running. So I can't just wait for five years until I earn income, which is a fair point. Um, and so what we do is we calculate the amount of money that uh, farmers will be earning when they're officially up and running. And it takes cacao trees, a uh, precocious cacao tree can produce its first pod in, in three years, but it doesn't really hit, you know, uh, it doesn't become really productive until year five. So we calculate what, the, what that income stream would be. We agree to pay the farmer that starting in day one. So monthly payments automatically uh, uh, debited to their account every single month in exchange for the service of restoring the forest on their land. And so there is a, a, a carbon calculation that, that we that can be made and, and we equate this to a carbon benefit because that's the way that the world loves to to um, to, to kind of monetize uh, ecosystem services. And in a sense where we are paying these service providers for uh, for planting trees, for reforesting land, they get payments for five years until their cacao trees start producing revenue. And then they get access to these uh, extremely high paying markets. One of which is the, cho- the chocolate company Toak, which is a, a company that I also co-founded and pays is kind of known for the, the most expensive chocolate in the world and also is known for paying farmers the highest prices in the world. And so that's the key element there. They get access to this super high paying market in the meantime, they get paid uh, monthly payments and to to kind of bridge that gap. And they also get uh, starting in year one because bananas is a, is a staple crop in the area. Um, there's you know they're producing a tremendous amount of food for their their families and right. they can also sell. So it's kind of trying to bring everything together um, and into the same package. 
chocolate. What makes some chocolate the most expensive in the world and others quite a bit less so? What, what are you really doing there that is created? I mean, you're written up in Smithsonian Magazine um, about what you're doing as well as many, many others. So how have you sort of captured the imagination of so many people in the world? Yeah, well, there, there's an amazing story behind the cacao that we use. It cacao... Uh, the cacao has been used by humans for what we know by archaeological evidence, 5, 000, at least 5,300 years, dating back to uh, this um, obviously pre-Columbian civilization in the Mao Chichibe in Ecuador. So Ecuador is, as far as we as humans know at this point, the, the beginning of the human uh, humans' relationship with cacao. So you have this really long history in Ecuador specifically. You have this really special variety called Nacional. You know, cacao, just like wine, you know, wine varieties. We have Pinot Noir, Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay. Uh, cacao, we also have varieties, uh, one of which is called Nacional. The origins of Nacional still aren't fully known, but we know that it was the dominant um, cacao uh, variety in coastal Ecuador when Europe um, by the time Europeans first arrived, that was already well est established there. And over the next few hundred years, cacao cacao hadn't been migrating to other parts of the world for 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 a few thousand years. It reached uh, Central America, it reached uh, southern uh, Mexico, and then in the, of course you know in the 1700s it began. It migrated to Africa and Asia on the tropics, but. Ecuadorian cacao was always kind of the, the creme de la creme. It was the it was the the favored uh, cacao source for chocolate makers in Europe specifically. And so in the 1800s, it was the highest priced variety in the world. It was it was prized for its floral aroma, for its complex flavor profile. Although they didn't use those terms then, that's a very those are the, the bougie wine terms we use now. But that was what they were going for. Um, and in about 19, and cacao at the time was, that was Ecuador's biggest industry. That That's cacao um, is what built Ecuador's biggest city. And so uh, by 1916, a disease arrived um, called, there were two diseases back to back, which is broom and frosted pod disease that arrived within about three years of each other uh, around 1916 to 1920 that time. And it decimated this specific variety in the wake of that, seeds from other uh, parts of the world were brought in. So non-Ecuadorian cacao seeds, non-national seeds were brought in, started to interbreed with cacao that was there. And fast forward 100 years later, and national cacao um, in its purest form had basically disappeared. It was believed to be extinct. Uh, there was a valley in the, the northeastern corner of Peru that uh, neighbors Ecuador. Um, where some of these trees had been found and then uh we uh believe that we had found another source of of this uh, of these trees because they they were well old they were much older than 100 years old had all the characteristics we contacted the usda genetic lab which was the foremost and still is uh them along with another genetic lab in trinidad the, the two foremost um cacao genetics labs in the world they tested uh, least samples from these trees and were able to determine that, that in fact these were this was pure nacional which they called ancient nacional cacao and so it was the in ecuador it was the it was the only known valley that had this 
and that kind of that that kick started uh the the project that i had the chocolate project that i had started with a few other people called Tolak chocolate suddenly we had this uh kind of exclusive access to this this famed source of cacao and we created a brand around it we um and not going beyond simply the gen x of the cacao we we packaged chocolate the way that wine is packaged we uh to a certain extent we um rather than bottles of course we, we made these really finely craft handcrafted wooden boxes that come with the tasting a wooden tasting utensil that come with a 115 page booklet uh, and try to really celebrate cacao as something in chocolate as something uh, really on the level of the finest wines and whiskeys you can find, as opposed to just the, the the candy bars of our childhood. We wanted to really kind of flip that paradigm on its head, with the consequence being that if 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 customers out there are willing to pay much more for for chocolate, then we then you know accordingly those chocolate companies can pay cacao growers much more for their cacao, and then you can then you can kind of um, flip the paradigm. In terms of how cacao is farmed and so that that was the first step in this process that we've that we are now kind of coming full circle on so in this whole story we you know we've heard that you've discussed in the last 30 minutes or so it, it's you're, you're you're giving rise to a whole economic model um for a region is this is this something that can be replicated? Is this something that has been or like, because it's it's obviously so brilliantly thought through the way that you tell it. And I'm, hey, as an entrepreneur, I know you probably, it, it may sound more brilliant than it was at the time, but the essence of what you've done is so incredibly well thought through step by step. Um, how do you replicate or do you? Yeah, well, so we start we we started piloting it, this project in just a single community, um, and it it really it took off so quickly that we have uh, we started expanding to a few more communities, and and we we are now I think at uh, six different communities, and we're, we continue to grow. And so throughout the the area we work in is is it's the the ecosystem is called the Pacific Forest of Ecuador, but specifically it's the Capuchin Corridor. Which is where we're conducting this uh, this program, and that's a it's a conservation corridor that connects the last kind of all the protected areas in along this mountain range. And so, currently, it's limited to the Capuchin Corridor. This project and 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 these this cacao genetics. I I think that it's it's possible that this that this specific program could be replicated to other parts of Ecuador. I think more broadly what could be replicated to other parts of the tropics is this model of and this is it's not a new concept to try to grow a very high a high value um, non-timber forest product and use that as the the linchpin of a conservation mm -hmm. uh, project but what is lacking i think is actually real examples of that really working and you look around you hear this you know it's like one of those concepts that works on paper and you're like all right well who's doing it and um, there aren't many examples of that in the world, and we want it to be one. We want, you know, we want to be the example that people can say, "Hey, did you hear what they're doing in Ecuador with cacao? Let's do that with, you know, with cloves in Africa. Let's do that." And you know, there's effort, efforts to do that with uh, with coffee in, in Colombia, and I think there's a lot of promise for it. 
I think uh, it's part of that is is convincing is finding a product that that consumers are willing to to pay a premium for, and that they're they understand why they're paying that premium. It's not just to to enrich uh, you know the, the owner of of whatever product is being sold, but there's a whole supply chain there, and that's just the end stop of it. And so part of it's just consumer awareness, and part of it's is 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 finding the right. Um, not just the right product market fit, uh, fit, but also uh, the, the the product farmer fit, and to use that and and to leverage it, and to see if if we can do that in other parts of the world. And this is just you know we're we're doing it we're doing it in Ecuador, and we hope that we inspire uh, other projects like this in other parts of the world. Well, Jerry Jerry Toss, uh, co-founder of Third Millennium Alliance. It's been fascinating. I mean, thank you so much for, for joining and some say hi to the future. And uh, what an incredible story, what an incredible life journey you've had and you continue to have. And, and, and thank you for all your work. And, and we hope that we can share this out and have some small impact on, on what you're doing. Thanks, Ken. It's been great. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to support our show, leave us a review and join our mailing list by visiting www.spider.works. That's S-P-Y-D-E-R.works and subscribe to our channel. Leave us a comment with who we should interview next. Thank you for listening and see you all next Friday.